This morning we're going to take a break from our study in the Gospel of Luke. And today I wanted to preach a a more of a a topical sermon, a a thematic sermon, if you will. I wanted to trace for us uh, the theme of the gift of God's Son. In Isaiah chapter 9, there in in that uh, very famous uh, prophecy of the coming of a child, Isaiah prophesies of the birth of of a child and a son who would reign over a never-ending kingdom of peace, justice, and righteousness. And this promised child and son, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate this Christmas. The birth of God's Son isn't just a small part of, of God's sovereign plan as revealed in Scripture, but it's a significant part. In fact, it's the central part. God's plan of salvation centers and rests upon the sending of His Son. Last week in examining the parable of the vine growers in Luke chapter 20, verse 9 to 19, the landowner stated, I will send my beloved son. And that son, beloved son, represented Jesus Christ. This Sunday morning before Christmas, I want to meditate on God's plan of salvation reflected in this phrase. When the father says, I will send my beloved son. The 66 books of the scriptures, written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, consistently look to the arrival of God's Son. And my aim this morning is to trace through the scriptures the plan of the Heavenly Father to send His beloved Son. So I hope you have your Bibles ready, or at least get your iPad or your iPhones ready. You're going to be flipping through a lot of verses this morning. I hope if you have, uh, can see the screen, you'll be able to see it on, keynote, on, on our screen today. But we're going to go through a journey of several key passages, a little more than several probably. And as we do so, may it encourage your soul, may it encourage your heart. May you cause you to once again appreciate the, what the Father has done. And may you worship the triune God for the gift of His Son. And for an outline this morning, we're going to look at simply, uh, as we uh, we kind of help us to trace through the scriptures, three points. And these three points are three facets of God's sovereign plan of sending His beloved Son that compel us to praise and worship Him. So three facets of God's sending of His Son that compel us to praise and worship Him. That's what we're going to look at this morning, all right? So let's, uh, hope you have your Bibles ready, let's look in. To, for our facet number one, I will send my beloved son. The first point I want to make, or that scripture can, teaches us about, is the father's plan of sending his son. Just as the father in the parable says, I will send. It means it is an intentional a purpose in sending his son. I will send. And we learn of God's plan to send his son from the very beginning of the Bible. In the first, very first book of, of Genesis, we find two significant promises of God. The first one is in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And you can look there with me, and hopefully I can find it all along as you go, as you go along. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And in that faithful chapter of Genesis chapter 3, Satan has deceived Eve, and, and, and Adam followed her, in her, followed her in disobeying God by eating of the forbidden fruit. And in that moment, sin entered the human race. And every human being from that point on has brought forth in sin. They would be enslaved to sin. They would be cursed to a life of sin. And they would eventually face 
a judgment of God's wrath of over sin. Each one is born willing and working for one's own pleasure instead of for God. But even at that moment, this moment of the curse, God already had a plan to save mankind from sin. And it's in Genesis 3.15. We read this in Genesis 3.15. And I, in the, in the curse that God pronounces upon the serpent, he says this to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, that is Eve, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This verse is known as the Proto-Evangelion, uh, or also known as the First Gospel. And although Satan would continue to wage war against humanity, God promises here that Eve's seed would triumph over Satan's seed. The word seed here is in the singular in context, often determines whether it refers to one's descendants as a group or as a single descendant. God's use of the third masculine pronoun, he, in the very next phrase, is, tell, indicates that he is referring to the singular seed, a singular person. That there is a singular person that will be a descendant of this woman who will bruise the serpent. God promises that one day the woman's seed will deliver a fatal blow to the head of the serpent, while the serpent, in response, would also deliver a non-fatal blow, a blow on the heel of, the, of her seed. Christians have universally understood this to be a reference to Jesus' death on the cross. Here is the first promise of a son who would crush Satan. As we continue in the scriptures, there's a second promise regarding the seed is found in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis 12, God makes a promise, uh, oh, and not only Genesis 12, but Genesis 22 as well. And then this is called the promise of Abraham's seed. So Genesis 3 is the promise of the woman's seed. Here in Genesis 12 and 22 is the promise of Abraham's seed. In Genesis 12, 1 to 3, also known as the Abrahamic covenant, God makes a promise to, to Abraham of a land a nation, and a blessing. God says to Abram, particularly in verse 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God would elaborate on this in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. There we read in Genesis 22, 15 to 18, these words. God is speaking still to Abraham. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And the context of this passage is that Abraham had not withheld his only son. God was testing him, asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham did not withhold even his own son, his beloved son. And so in that response, God reiterated his covenant promise. He provided a sacrifice and a substitute for Isaac. And he made this promise. And he revealed, particularly in verse 18, that in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God promised to bless him and that 
Abraham so that he would, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But he said, now he specifically says, in your seed, I will give you a, a seed, a descendant, whom all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now we eventually learn in the New Testament of progressive revelation, Galatians 3.16, that that seed is Jesus Christ. That in the descendant of Abraham, Jesus, all the families and the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the instrument of blessing to the world. Now up to this point in, in Genesis, it's, it is unclear who he would be. But then in Second Samuel 7 as well as First Chronicles 17, God makes a promise to King David. We call this the, 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 um, the, the Davidic covenant. First Chronicles. In First Chron- uh, Chronicles 17 is really just a, par- a parallel of Second uh, Samuel 7. It's, but it's taken, it has a more of a focus on the messianic uh, nature of the Davidic covenant. First Chronicles 17. If we listen to First Chronicles 17, verse 11 to 14. God is speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled, that you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up one of your descendants after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him, as I took it from him who was before you. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. Here we see the promised seed. The word descendants in verse 11 is actually the singular word seed. The seed of David who would build a house for God. Whose kingdom and throne would be established forever by God. And in verse 13, we learn that God will be, have this unique relationship with his king. He will be a father to him. And the seed of David will be his son. What's more, God's loving kindness would never be taken away from this son. And so, the seed of the woman of Abraham and of David would be the beloved son of God whose kingdom would never end when we, when we put all these together. And in this son's reign, Satan would be crushed, the nations would be blessed, and the house of God would be built. This promise would be continued throughout the, pro- the rest of the prophets, especially the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we are very familiar with Isaiah 7, 14. You can turn in your Bibles there or just look on the screen. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, and God is speaking here, the Lord saying to King Ahaz, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The prophesied child and son would be born miraculously of a virgin. The explanation for this is because of who he is. He is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. That would be... Uh, that we would see that reference fulfilled in Matthew 1, 18 to 25. But the crown of revelation of this child and this son who would be born of a virgin is in Isaiah chapters 9, verse 6 to 7. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. 
For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The promised virgin-born son will be given to us. That is, he is a gift from God. And he who is given to us will reign and rule over the world with perfect peace, justice, and righteousness forever. No kingdom of this world lasts forever except his. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. This son of woman, son of Abraham, and son of David. But how can that be? How can this, this son of, of human beings, descendants of human beings, be, be a mighty God, be eternal father? Because these words only describe God. It would be blasphemy for anyone to call themselves eternal father or mighty God, right? But only, the only explanation is that the only the son of God, who would share in the divine being with the father, could rightly be named so. He is the virgin-born Emmanuel, God with us. So when we put, as we look at, consider all these verses together, God from the very beginning had planned to send His Son from Genesis 3 to Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, all the way to 2 Samuel 7 or 1 Chronicles 17, to Isaiah 7, 14, and Isaiah 9, and all the books in between, the Psalms and, the, and, and other books as well. In the fulfillment of his promise of the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, and the seed of David, a child will be born to a virgin, and the child would be the Son of God, God with us. And only he could defeat Satan. Only he could bless the nations of the earth. And only he would reign in a kingdom forever. This is God's plan. And God had planned it from the beginning. You can't help but think of Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Right? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. This is a, a we serve and know an all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God. Amen? I can almost hear you saying it out there. Amen. Hallelujah. But Wait. There's even more to this plan. The second facet of God sending His Son is this, is the Father's love in sending His Son. The Father's love in sending His Son. He says, I will send my beloved Son. My beloved Son. God planned to send His beloved Son from the very beginning. There are two aspects of God's love that we see in the sending of His Son both of which give us reason to praise Him. Number one, there is the Father's love for His Son. The Father's love for His Son. This is His beloved Son. We had already noted from 1 Chronicles 17 that God said, I will not take my loving kindness away from Him. And when Jesus walked on earth, on two specific, 
two specific occasions, God audibly spoke out loud for others so that others would hear regarding his son. You remember those occasions? At Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' transfiguration. And what did he say of his son in those cases? A voice out of the heavens spoke. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17. Matthew 17.5 are are some references you can look at. Even 2 Peter 1 verse 17. Now God could have said many things about his son, right? He could have said, this is my only begotten son. Or this is my holy son. Or this is my faithful son. And all of that would have been true. But of all the descriptions that the father could have used of his son, he wanted the hearers to know that this son, his son, is his beloved son. That his son is greatly loved by the father. Jesus is the object of the Father's great love. Remember even last week we saw in the parable of the vine growers, the owner of the vineyard sends his beloved son. And that son is Jesus. Scriptures emphasize that Jesus is God's beloved son. It's the object of his great love. No book of the Bible emphasizes the Father's love for the Son more than the Gospel of John. In, in the Gospel of John, there are seven instances that refer to the Father's love for the Son. And one, just briefly, just look at each one of them, just to get to the overwhelming pre- sense of God's love and how great this love is. Look at, uh, look at these scriptures with me, John, uh, in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. John 5.20 For the Father loves His Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. And then John 10.17 For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. And then John 15.9 Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. And then those are the first four instances. The last three instances in the Gospel of John are all found in the same chapter, in John uh, 17, John chapter 17, which is Jesus' high priestly prayer. In Jesus' uh, prayer uh, on the, in, the Mount, in, in, the, uh, in the on the Mount of Olives, he is uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's he's praying. He's praying uh, this prayer on behalf of himself and then for his, his disciples, and then for, for others. And in this last section where this, we find these verses, it's, he's praying basically for all his disciples who would ever believe in him, all who would ever believe in him. Listen to what he prays for those who would all, all those who would ever believe in him. John 17, 22 to 26. He prays this, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have 
given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. It's a, it's a rich prayer and much, this, much that is said in here. But now what we do want to, what I want to point out is that not only do we learn that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world, we see that in verse, uh, in verse 24, but Jesus prays that the Father's love for the Son may be the love that believers in Him come to know and consequently make known to the world. You know, as, that's, that's his prayer. He wants, us to, he wants all those who believe in him to know God's love and to make that love known. As parents, we have great love for our children. It's probably one of the strongest loves that we can see examples of in our world. It's what makes it so hard when they leave the house. I mean, even the thoughts of them leaving one day is kind of already making my heart a little bit achy. But I can only imagine what it's like when they actually do leave for college. And then when they do finally leave because they find another and a spouse and get married and move off. It's hard enough to let them go, much less than to intentionally send them away. But as much as we love our children, God loves His Son even more. And yet, the Father sent His Son away from Him to take on mortal flesh and be mistreated and be crucified by sinful men. The love that God the Father has for His Son makes the sending of His Son that much greater. Oh, how great the Father's love for us. And that leads us to the second aspect of the Father's love in sending His Son. That there, number two, not only is there the Father's love for the Son, but number two, there's the Father's love for us in, in, the, in the sending of His Son. The Apostle John also expounds the most on this theme, the Father's love. He does it in his gospel, he does it in his epistles. And the most familiar verse in the world is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's parallel in John's epistle is 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. The Apostle Paul would also teach of the Father's love for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. In this great book, epistle about the surrounding uh, on the theme of the gospel of God, one of the, he expounds on the love of God. Romans five verse eight. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
See, when God sent His Son, His beloved Son, God's love for the world was on full display. It was shining brightly for everyone who had eyes to see. Thinking back to the parable of the vine growers that we looked at last week, you see, God didn't stop with just sending His prophets to stiff-necked Israel. He's kept, he, he sent multiple prophets, and then as a final resort, He sent them His beloved Son. That is how much He loved them. That's how much He loved us. See, while we were yet sinners, His enemies, those in rebellion against Him, those who wanted nothing to do with Him, God sent His beloved Son to die for us. Unfaithful, unrighteous, unbelieving sinners. Oh, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. We see in the sending of His Son, God's love. God's love. And we, for this we praise Him. Thirdly and finally, the third facet of in, God, in God's sending of His Son that we look at that causes us to praise and worship Him is the Father's purpose in sending His Son. The Father's purpose. It is a plan to, I will send my beloved Son. But what is the purpose? What is the purpose for which He will send His beloved Son? Of course, uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know the, the short answer to this. But the scriptures elaborate on this, on that, the theme of the, of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Various scriptures teach of the purposes for which God sent His Son. We saw earlier from John 3.16, the following verse, John 3.17, we read this, For God did not send his, the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. And then God didn't, God didn't send His Son to, to judge the world, to destroy the world, but to save the world. What's more, we, all, we, we saw 1 John 4.9 earlier, but look at 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, God sent His Son to save the world by sending Him to be the propitiation. That word means the sacrifice that was made to satisfy God's holy demands for the punishment of sin. Our sin demands punishment because God is holy. And there's a penalty for all the, the sins that we commit. But the, Jesus came to be the sacrifice, to, to be the propitiation, the sacrifice made to satisfy God's holy wrath and justice. Jesus came to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that sacrifice was made upon the cross, where He died as a substitute for us. And in so doing, He struck the crushing blow upon the head of Satan. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Jesus came in flesh and blood, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death. That is, the devil. See, Satan had condemned the souls of all humanity to death, eternal death, because of the curse of sin. But Christ came in the flesh, said so he would die in our place to pay the penalty of sin, and he saved all who would believe in him. All would be delivered from the grips of Satan. You see, 
And in that way, Jesus struck the crushing blow on Satan's head. Thus, whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. The Apostle Paul would further write of God's purpose in sending his son in Colossians 1, 13 to 14. And we read Colossians 1, 13 to 14. Paul writing of what God did for God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins see in addition to being saved from our sins God sent his son to give us citizenship in his kingdom in Christ's kingdom and although Christ's kingdom is still to come we have been made citizens nevertheless of that kingdom if you pull out your wallet and you dig around there, you'll be finding, well, your spiritual wallet, you'll find an ID card that doesn't say state of California or U.S. citizen. It will say citizen of heaven, citizens of Christ's kingdom for all of those who believe. The kingdoms of the earth, even at this time, are still seeking for peace, righteousness, and justice. Even in our great country as it is, people are clamoring on the streets for looking for peace. They're crying out for righteousness. They're crying out for justice. Because there is no perfect kingdom on earth. But Christ's kingdom was, is that perfect kingdom. We who belong to God's Son have the hope of His coming kingdom. We have citizenship in His kingdom. We're not citizens of this world. We are citizens of heaven. And it's what comforts and it's what strengthens us as we live in this fallen world. Christ, God sent His Son to be our propitiation, to save us from Satan's grip. And God sent His Son to give us citizenship in Christ's kingdom. There's one more element I want to point out. And that's in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 to 5. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 to 5. And that is our adoption. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. See, in addition to being saved from our sins in Christ, God sent His Son to give us to give us a, a, a family. You see, God didn't just save us and then make us His servants, like the angels serve Him. Or God didn't just save us and then make us just simply subjects of His kingdom. Rather, He sent His Son to redeem us so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters, as a part of his family. We're not servants, nor, not just servants or, nor citizens. We are his sons and daughters. You know, uh, it's at Christmas time that we often feel the joy and sorrow of family. Because it's at Christmas time that 
Traditionally, we have are the times that we have seen and seen and, and shared our holiday celebrations with. And in and it is their presence as well as absence that are felt more so this year. Some of us don't have family to spend Christmas with. Some of us are choosing to stay home and not travel, maybe catching a plane or taking a long drive to to be with family in other places, parts of our country. And this Christmas, you may be alone. You may not be invited or go to any family dinners. But you have the family of God. And though we don't have, uh, we probably don't have elaborate dinners like, <laughs> or meals like you do with, uh, uh, with your, um, your family during Christmas, we gather together. We'll gather together on Christmas Day, Christmas morning, 9.30 a.m. Look in your announcements for the information. And we'll gather together as a family because of our common bond in Christ as adopted sons and daughters. And we will worship Christ and we'll greet one another. We'll talk with one another and we'll celebrate together. God sending His Son. I hope you'll be able to join us that day as the Lord enables you. God the Father sent His Son so we may be saved from Satan's power of sin and death. The Father sent His Son so that we might become citizens in the Son of David's eternal kingdom. And the Father sent His Son so that all the families of the earth might be blessed because in Christ we have all become a part of God's family. And this is God's plan. This is the beauty of God's plan throughout Scripture to send His beloved Son. I hope even as you've been hearing and looking at the Scriptures, they have been causing you to, your heart to well up with desire. But I leave with a, a couple questions just to, to, to challenge you and to spur you on even to further response. What should our response be to all of this? All these rich truths, all these rich realities of, of Christ, of our position, our possessions in Jesus Christ. The wisdom and the power and the, and the glory that's reflected and the love that's shown of God in Jesus. What will be your response? What does the Father have to say about this? In that same, those same passages where he said, this is my beloved son. In two of those passages, Matthew 17, Mark 9, and this is all both uh, parallels of the transfiguration. He adds a phrase, this is my beloved son. And then he says, listen to him. When God introduces his beloved son, he wants everyone to hear, who hears to listen to him. To listen to Jesus. And we have Jesus' words recorded in the scriptures. And when we look at the, and as we've been going through the gospel, Luke, we've been, you might read the gospels, you probably will have come to understand what is Jesus' main message. 
is He's calling people to become a part of this kingdom by repenting of sin and believing in the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. And when Jesus had opportunity to summarize all of the scriptures, all that the scripture teaches, how did He summarize it? He said, it is summarized in the two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. So then, what should our response be to all this? What will our response be? Let us come. Come, let us love the Son. Let us love the Father. Come, let us worship and praise His name. Come and trust in Him who sent His beloved Son for unfaithful sinners like you and me. No matter where you are at this time, this Christmas season, whether you are full of joy or, or full of sorrow, whether you're going through trials or you're, you're, you're just experiencing triumphs in Christ, may you draw near to Christ. May you come to Him. Let's, let's respond and let's reflect with these truths with, with the final song.